On this edition of The Golf Guy, we talked to Ted Bishop, the 38th president of the PGA, about his uh, many experiences in the game uh, from meeting and spending some time with legends like Byron Nelson and Sam Snead um, to his um, presidency and his experience with the Ryder Cup uh, in particular. Um, Ted was sort of the driving force um, behind having Tom Watson come back for the captaincy at Glen Eagles in 2014. And as you'll hear, he um, has really established a, a deep friendship with Tom, and we talk at length about that. And his other experiences um, in the presidency, as I think you'll hear as we go through that, I mean, he really accomplished a remarkable amount um, in his um uh, two-year presidency, uh, I think always viewed as someone who put his members first. And we also touch at the end uh, for a little while on the abrupt end to his presidency, um, which was um, due to those unfortunate um, tweets that he sent out uh, in response to some um, critical comments that Ian Poulter had made about Watson and, and Nick Faldo. And um, I think you'll, as you'll hear, you know, Ted has never backed away from um, acknowledging, um, you know, the, the unfortunate uh, mistake he made there and, and has always taken ownership of that. Um, and we talk a little about that as well. And, um, and where he is today, which is um, going on 30 years of running the Legends Golf Course, where he's the owner-operator. Um, his wife's involved with it, with him, who runs the food and beverage operation, one of his daughters. Um, helps out as well as long as uh, as well as the son-in-law. Um, both of his daughters are involved in the game. The other daughter is a um, a pro at um, uh, St Andrews um, on Hastings on the Hudson outside New York. So both of his girls are involved in golf. And also, just to quickly um, give you some context, uh, as I realized when we talked towards the end of the podcast about the final press conference for the 2014 Ryder Cup. Um, We don't kind of tee up the um, background, uh, and I'm thinking it's seven and a half years since it happened, so not everyone may be familiar with it, but just really quickly, um, you know, Phil Mickelson at that press conference after the U.S. team lost was um, uh, critical of, some of the uh, approach that Tom Watson had taken as captain. And it was just a awkward um, moment because Phil is sitting there um, criticizing Tom and Tom is sitting, you know, at the same table as him in front of all the media and that's all being done live in real time. So uh, when Ted and I talk about the awkwardness of that press conference, that's that's the background, and that's what we're referring to, just so folks know that. Well, welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy, and it is my great honor to have with us today Ted Bishop, the 38th president of the PGA, who's had a you know long and distinguished career in the game, um, which we're going to talk about. Ted, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Hey, Larry, thanks for uh, having me on. I'm looking forward to this. 
Yeah, as am I. So, um, you know, grew up in Indiana, I think, still there. Um, yes, maybe I am. Maybe you could get, get, get us started. Just how did you get started in the game? I know you played a whole bunch of different sports as a kid. So how did you get started in golf? Yeah, well, you know, my dad did not play golf. And uh, I played basketball and baseball and had to play tennis as a fall sport for basketball. So I really was not exposed to golf um, as a youngster, but I, uh, strangely enough, I always enjoyed watching golf on television. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I can remember the old CBS golf classic. And, oh, and I think, yeah, you know, well, one of, yeah. well, you know, one of the things that, that really attracted me to the game, believe it or not, at that age would have been the way those guys dressed. Yeah. And, uh, but I, uh, you know, I got a summer job working on a uh, par three course, the rolling Hills par three course in my hometown of Logansport, Indiana, between my junior and senior year in high school. And, uh, it was just a job. Um, you know, and I think that first summer that I worked there, I was playing American Legion baseball and, and summer basketball. And I'm not sure I ever even picked a club up, but, I loved working at the golf course. And in particular, I loved working for the guy uh, who ran the place. And his name was Dick Herr. And he was a PGA member. And uh, he was also a superintendent. And uh, Dick later on in his career actually wound up as the golf course superintendent at Jupiter Hills Country Club in Florida. And uh, was there during the U.S. Amateur Championship. And he and I used to joke. You know, looking back at uh, the Rolling Hills Par 3 course from 1971 to 75, those five summers that I worked there for him, who would have believed that you had a guy that was going to be the superintendent, you know, for U.S. Amateur Championship and uh, somebody who was going to be the president of the PGA of America working at this little Par 3 course. (laughs) That's for sure. And and yeah, in Jupiter Hills, I've never played it, but I know it's a Fazio course and just a tremendous place so that that's interesting so you kind of from the beginning were not just on the golf pure golf side of it but you were on the superintendent maintenance side as well I know obviously today you know you're we'll get to that you're running the legends place but it sounds like you had both sides not just the pure golf side if I'm uh, if I'm remembering right well no that's true and and, you know when I went to I went to Purdue University and you know my freshman year I was going to actually major in uh I majored radio and TV and television. And, uh, you know, after, you know, one year at Purdue and, you know, having worked now a couple of summers at this golf course for Dick, right. uh, you know, he encouraged me to uh, really change my major in college to agronomy and turf management. Purdue has one of the best schools in the country for that. Right. So I did that and, uh, you know, graduated from Purdue with a degree in agronomy and turf management and wanted to be a golf course superintendent. And so from there, uh, you go to what I think at that point was called Linton Municipal Golf Course, I believe. And, and you were offered both, a, I think, both a pro and superintendent job combined. Is that right? Or something like that, I think. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny story, really. I, um, uh, they were looking primarily for a golf course superintendent. And you had to make your, your money doing the things that the golf pro would do. And, uh, you know, this is 1976, you know, a hundred years ago. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this, the salary, uh, was 6,500 a year. I, I had a little house wow. on the course that I could live in wow. rent free, but I was going to own the cards. I was going to own the shop and I was going to own the concessions. And, uh, that uh, consisted of 12 golf cars because they had like 75 private cards. 
uh, the building was all total. I think the dimensions in this little pro shop might have been uh, 25 feet by 40 feet. And I borrowed $2,500 from my grandfather to inventory the shop. Wow. And, uh, and, and of course, I had the, the snack bar as well. And they told me if I worked really hard that I could probably make $17,000, $18,000 a year, which at the time was the same that a starting teacher would have made, you know, coming out of college. Um, and, you know, I, I thought about it and I actually, I turned the job down and uh, oh, wow. I was in my college, well, I was in my college dormitory room shortly after one night and I got a phone call from uh, Frank Henry, who was the uh, PGA professional at the municipal course, in my hometown of Logansport. And my dad and grandfather were barbers. And Frank had been in the barbershop and had gotten a haircut and asked, uh, you know, what I was doing. And my dad told him that I had turned this job down. And, and Frank called me and he's like, you know, why did you turn this job down? And I said, well, because I don't know anything about being a golf bro. I want to be a golf course superintendent. And he said, look, he said, you have the basic skill that they need in the superintendent's end of it. And he said, you can le learn the business acumen. He said, you really ought to rethink that. And, uh, so I did, I called them back. They hadn't filled the job and they wound up hiring me. And, uh, you know, when I left there 17 years later, I'd gotten all those private cards phased out. I had my own fleet of 60 golf cars. <laughs> uh, my golf shop had been named as one of America's 100 best oh, public, wow. uh, you know, wow. golf shops yeah. by golf shop operations magazine. Yeah. And I was making a lot of money. And if I'd have been really smart, I would ne probably never have left. There. <laughs> That's funny. So, so, wow. So during those 17 years, talk to me a little bit about the whole Phil Harris connection. That sounds like that was just a fascinating aspect of it. Well, it was, again, you know, I, I remember going down for that first job interview. And as a kid, I used to enjoy watching American Sportsman on yeah. uh, ABC. Hey, with Jim McKay, yeah, though. Exactly. Right, sure, yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, Phil Harris was a fairly regular guest on American Sportsman. He was, he was a great outdoorsman. He hunted, he fished, and he was, uh, he was on there a lot with Bing Crosby. Yeah. And I remember going into this job interview, and uh, I'd gone into Linton, and they had this little park, and there was this sign in front of the park that said, Phil Harris Parkway. And uh, I go in the interview and I said, is that the Phil Harris? And of course, typical of any small town, um, you know, they're like, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's Phil Harris. Like it was, <laughs> it was no big deal. And I'm like, well, that, that's the guy that that's on American sportsman, you know, right, frequently. Right, and, right. and, you know, they, they just kind of, you know, passed it off. Like it was, it was no big deal, but Phil was born there in 1904. Okay. And, uh, you know, a, a really cool thing that happened in, uh, in 1979, um, there was a local optometrist there who invited Phil to come back for one year and they were going to honor him at a, you know, a variety show that, that they were going to make some money for a scholarship in his name. And we were going to have a golf tournament and everything went off very well. And, uh, Phil decided that he wanted to come back and do this every year. So, he did that for probably 20 years before he ultimately uh, passed away. And that weekend was an absolute blast. And from the yeah. golf course standpoint, um, golf world labeled this as the largest pro-am in the United States wow. at wow. some point in the early eighties, we had 600 players oh, wow. that played over the course of two days. We had, uh, 
four shotgun starts, two each day. We played six-man teams. So we had 25 six-man teams in each shotgun start. Every team had a celebrity on it and, uh, you know, five amateurs. And it, it was a lot of fun. And as you can imagine, being from Southern California and probably being very familiar with Phil Harris, yeah. he, he always brought a lot of, of, of big names with him. And we had one year, we had Jay and Lionel Bear, Tony oh, wow. Penna, Oh. Doug Sanders, Mike Suchak, Dave oh, Marr. Wow. wow. Um, I mean, it was a phenomenal list of, of, of people that Phil would bring. That's incredible. You know, my recollection of Phil Harris was being a kid watching the Crosby tournament. And I still have to call it the Crosby tournament. I know it hasn't been called that in you know decades. I'm dating myself. But, but you know, when he would, because he was such good friends with Bing, and they'd have him in the TV tower um uh for many of the telecasts um while he was you know still with us so um yeah i i but i hadn't realized he was from indiana and and they renamed they renamed the golf course after him right uh that Linden yeah. course yeah we did that a couple of years after that the um, tournament started and and, uh, and yeah and and there was a if i'm remembering right you also had that pro-am in scottsdale um that you got it connected with if i'm remembering right which sounds well, like quite I did. an event yeah, I, I did. And that was really kind of through Phil Harris because he, he had been a part of that, but, uh, but I did, I, I had an opportunity just to go out. I was invited by Jack Fettigan, who's the, was the namesake of the tournament. He was an investment banker from New Jersey. And this was really the quintessential pro-am. They would have uh, 15 former PGA tour players. And these would have been guys that, you know, played back in the fifties and sixties, a lot of, you know, major championship winners from, from that day. And there would be a field of 45 amateurs. And like if you and I and somebody else were part of a team, we would play with a different pro each day and we would honor a golf legend. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, it was, they honored Byron Nelson, Sam Snead. I became tournament director in the, uh, I think it was 1987. And it was kind of funny because the, the honoree that first year when I became director was Claude Harmon. And okay. we had, we had done Snead and Nelson, uh, the two years before. And I thought, boy, this is just my luck. We do Snead and Nelson and, and I get Claude Harmon. And I didn't really know a lot about, yeah, you know, sure. Claude at, the, at the time, but I soon did. And I will tell you that, um, he became the greatest honoree that, that we'd ever had, you know, wow. in that tournament. And, uh, you know, here was a guy that was a club professional, who won the masters as yeah. a club professional in 1948. Right. And he spent six months of the year at Wingfoot and six right. months at Thunderbird and had a bunch of guys like Dave Marr and Suchak and Jack Burke that were former assistants of his at Wingfoot. Right. Um, right. So it was right. fun. No, it's great. You know, it's funny. You think back to those days. I mean, he's probably the Zenith of, um, club pros who were great players. Um, you know, Bob Ford at Oakmont comes a little bit to mind. He's played in U.S. Open. It's not not with Claude's record, but Claude with his kids and Butch and quite a golf family. So I can totally understand why he would be at the top of the list on terms of the people you honored. Um, so you really got to meet golf royalty there, right? With Byron and Sam. I mean, I, that must have been incredible to get to meet people like that. You know, it was. And uh, that first year that I went out there. Um, they, they gave me a, <laughs> this was a great job. I had to drive Byron Nelson back and forth to the golf course oh, wow. every day. And uh, we were staying at carefree and the course was about 45 minutes away. And I would get up and I would have breakfast with Mr. Nelson every day. I'd drive wow. him to the courts, wow. have lunch with him, drive him home. So we had a lot of time 
you know, that we were just by ourselves. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a phenomenal experience. And I remember, uh, you know, he was talking about an interview that he did one night at a Fort Worth radio station with Ben Hogan. And, uh, you know, of course, Hogan and Nelson grew up in the same caddy yard. Right. They were, they were right. competitors and they were rivals, but, you know, obviously they had a lot of respect for each other, but, you know, Mr. Nelson, uh, he was telling this story about at the end of the interview, the host asked, um, and he started with, uh, with Byron and he said, you know, how would you assess, uh, Ben's game? And Byron said, you know, I feel like Ben Hogan was probably the finest ball striker that I had ever played with. And, uh, then he asked Hogan, you know, what he thought of, of Nelson's game. Right. And Hogan said, you know, I never felt like Byron reached his full potential oh, because boy. he never practiced or hit enough golf balls. Oh, gosh. And, you know, as Nelson was telling the story, you could, you could still sense that he was, was very upset sure. you know, by Hogan's comments. And he, and he went on to say, he said, you know, I was never the kind of guy that needed to stand out there and beat hundreds of balls. And uh, he said, quite to the contrary, he said, if I was hitting the ball good, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was fatigue myself right. you know, and, and damage my swing. So he right. said, I tried right. to be very efficient in how I practiced. And he said, that was a, a real difference between, you know, Hogan and I. And he said, I took great exception to that comment. <laughs> I, I don't I don't blame him. You know, that's a whole interesting aspect of the two of them, that that tension that was sort of there, as you point out, they were rivals. And I, I remember reading in um, one of the bios of Hogan that, you know, when he passed away. And of course, Nelson, Nelson, as people, Nelson Sneed and Hogan, all born in 1912, quite a year for golf. Um, but um, when Hogan passed, um, Valerie didn't invite him to the funeral and he came anyways. But I mean, there was clearly, I never quite understood what the tension was between them, but uh, that was too bad that, that Ben said that. But Byron always you know, just the consummate gentleman and, um, uh, boy, that's cool. And, and, and you certainly sort of probably had a little bit of experience with Snead as well. I imagine. Um, Oh, I definitely did. Yeah. I actually had a chance to play with Snead. Oh, wow. uh, That's cool. Yeah. I played with him. uh, This must've been in 1986 and he had come in a couple of days early before this tournament. And, uh, this was back when he was doing those commercials on TV for Wilson. Uh, right, with the right. Wilson, the ultra ball, right? The, the ultra, ultra ball. ball. Yeah. The ultra ball. And uh, so um, I guess the, this would have been the first year I was running this tournament, actually. And so I called, uh, I reached out to Joe Wilson or Joe Phillips, who was the CEO of, of Wilson Sports and okay. Sporting Goods in Chicago. And I said, hey, we've got Sam Snead is going to be part of our field again. And, uh, you know, is there any chance that we could get some Wilson ultra golf balls that we could give to all of our participants and sure. uh, he's like sure and then so he sent us a, a ton of balls out and so you know i go to the first tee and i'm, I'm playing with sneed and i've made a point that i'm, I'm going to play a wilson ultra ball that day right and uh you know i see sam you know tee it up and he hits his tee shot and he's he's hitting the pinnacle and i said uh, you know excuse me mr c sneed but i said i'm I, i've got to ask you i said i'm really surprised that you're not playing the wilson ultra golf ball and he looks over at me and he says, son, let me tell you something. He said, when that ball gets to the top of its flight, he says it starts quivering like a quail. 
He said, I would never play that ball. But he said, I'll tell you what, they pay me enough. He said, I'll tell other people to play oh, it. <laughs> what a classic Sneed story, right? That That's him to a T. But, you know, that day, just the, the end of that story, though, that day, and he was 75 years old at the time, and uh, he shot 68 or 69 that day, and the wow. only bogey he made uh, was on the ninth hole, and he his, his eyes weren't great at that point in time, and he misjudged a layup on a par four and knocked his tee shot in the water and made bogey. But I tell you what, the guy still had game. Yeah, amazing, right? You know, and he actually, it's funny you mentioned that because he's been a little in the news just because – as you you know, Jay Haas played in the team event at Zurich and he and his son made the cut and Jay is 68. And, you know, they made this thing out of the oldest person to make a cut. I mean, it's, you know, it's a two man tournament and Jay to his credit sort of said, well, you know, it's not, let's not take anything away from Sam Snead because Snead, you know, made the cut in a PGA tournament, you know, not a team tournament at 67. So he was a phenomenal player and in, way into his seventies, tremendous athlete. Right. I mean, just, just oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, all the stories guy. kicking the ceiling, the double jointedness, yep. I mean, just an amazing guy. So, so you're with, um, you know, at that, the Linton course and doing this for 17 years, and then you get a chance in 92 to build your own facility. So talk to me about that. How did that come about and, 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 uh, be interested to hear about that. Yeah, actually, uh, I was approached by a couple of guys, um, you know, here in Indiana, one of which was Bob Knight, the basketball coach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if I would be interested in, in, you know, putting a deal together with some private investors where we would, you know, build and own our own golf course. And that was professionally, was always one of the things that, you know, I really wanted to do. So, so I did that, you know, I went out and, and raised, you know, all the investment money that we needed to, to build the course. Um, you know, we were able to locate um, a 300 and, 90 acre tract of, of ground about 25 miles south of downtown Indianapolis. And we hired Jim Fazio uh, okay. to be our golf course designer. And we built uh, 18 holes to begin with and opened the golf course in, in uh, the summer of 1992. And then later expanded to uh, 27 holes in 96 and, and also built an 18 hole par three course. So we had 45 holes. Uh, which we still have um, at that point in time. And, you know, public golf in Indiana was like it was uh, in a lot of places around the country where, um, you know, we were, we were so busy and made that decision to expand our operation because we were turning away five or 6,000 players a, a year. And we were playing 38,000 rounds, which was a lot yeah. in Indiana on an 18 hole course in a seasonal sure. climate like we have. Right. But then, you know, between uh, uh, 90, six and 2000 there were like 32 uh semi-private public golf courses that were built in central indiana and uh you know a lot of these were real estate courses and it basically you know it just kind of flooded the market um and golf then became really tough from a public standpoint and so right, right. you know we like a lot of other people um struggled for a few years made some changes in our business plan and uh you know, everything's been great, uh, you know, certainly in the last five years. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, 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 and I'm sure you've probably seen similar to what we've seen out here that with COVID and with golf being the ultimate, you know, social distancing sport, I mean, the number of rounds, at least in Southern California, and I get the sense it's generally true um, at all sorts of facilities, public, private, it's just skyrocketed the last few years. I assume you've been busy too. 
Yeah, we played uh, we we played over fifty five thousand rounds wow. uh, in two thousand and twenty wow. during COVID, and uh, wow. forty eight last year. And it's it's you know it's unbelievable that it would take a pandemic to really um, give public golf a shot of adrenaline, but that certainly happened. Right, boy, those are huge numbers for a seasonal course um, in Indiana. That that's amazing, and um, sounds like it's kind of a whole family affair, right? You think your daughter Ashley and your son-in-law are involved? In fact, both your girls are um, daughters are into golf, um, right? I think one of our members at St Andrews outside New York, and Ashley's with you, if I'm remembering right, which is kind of neat that you got both your kids involved in the game. Yeah, both my daughters, Ambry and Ashley, Ashley's my oldest. She played golf at uh, Kansas and uh, came back after college and is still working for me here at the Legends. And then Ambry, my youngest daughter, played at Indiana. And as you mentioned, she's a PGA member and she's at the oldest club in the United States, St. Andrews yeah. Golf Club and Hastings on the Hudson. And she's also in her uh, 17th year as the head women's golf coach at St. John's University in Queens. Oh, wow. And uh, so, you know, I take a lot of pride in the fact that my two daughters enjoyed being around the golf course to the point where they'd want to do it professionally. My wife runs our snack bar. My son-in-law is, uh, you know, very valuable. He's like the assistant GM here in the operation. His dad's one of my partners. So it's truly a a family operation. And, um, you know, it goes pretty smooth. I mean, it's not always easy working with your family, but everybody's kind of understands what their role and, and niches and the business. And, and it, it, it takes all of them to make this thing happen. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's cool. That's neat. So, um, so you're at the ledge, you've been there, as you say, I guess it's, uh, I'm doing my math right, almost 30, it'd be 30 years this summer. Um, talk to me, how did you get involved with the PGA organization nationally? Obviously you climbed all the way up to the very top, but I'm just sort of curious sort of how you got started in it and what attracted you to becoming more active in it. Yeah, well, you know, I was the uh, president of the Indiana PGA in 1997 and 98. Actually, I got involved with the Indiana section in the late 80s and served on the board of directors and then worked my way up through the various chairs. And when I got done as president of the section, I thought I was probably finished you know doing anything really with the pga and i had the opportunity in in uh, 2000 to uh serve on the national membership committee for the pga of america and then later got uh, a couple years later got appointed to the pga of america's board of control by jack Connolly, who was the president at the time and board of control is like the pga's version of the supreme court you hear all kinds of membership cases and uh, it's a very interesting um uh, entity to serve on and uh you know when when that wrapped up i i i enjoyed uh, the you know the experience with the pga and and so our district director's position was available here in district six with the pga which was indiana illinois and wisconsin so you know i served in that capacity and then i uh, i decided that i would uh you know would run for office um you know i ran uh the first time in uh 2006. And, uh, you know, I led after uh, a couple of ballots and then uh, wound up uh, losing on the on the third. I have the distinction of being the only guy that's ever done that. Um, (laughs) But uh, but as you know, most honestly, Larry, most PGA presidents, those that have served in that capacity have had to run for um, an officer's position more than once. So I did. And I came back uh, 
and was elected then in, in 2008 as secretary. And with the PGA, you served two years as secretary, two years as vice president. And then uh, my two years as president were 13 and 14. Right, right. Um, and um, we'll, we'll get to your presidency because you got so much done. But even before you were president, you kind of were getting involved, it sounds like, in the Ryder Cup stuff um and and um uh which has become just such a you know huge event right i mean in sport let alone golf um in the last you know my, my recollection i think back to the war at the shore with dave stockton um and you know when europe started winning um it became such a huge event um and uh so maybe talk to me a little bit about the Ryder cup and you know which ultimately led to you kind of uh, for the one I think was in Glen Eagles, getting Tom Watson to serve as, um, uh, as, as the captain. But what was the Ryder Cup experience like for you? Because I know you went to, you know, you went to the one with Paven with the unfortunate rain suits not working well <laughs> in 2010, uh, the Medina, the crazy comeback. I mean, you've seen, you saw quite a lot uh, before we get to Watson and Glen Eagles, right? Yeah, well, you know, when I was a, a director, uh, the first Ryder Cup that I would have attended in any uh, PGA capacity was at Valhalla. And uh, okay. of course, we 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 won that. And uh, right. that was Azinger was the captain. And that had right. uh, that snapped a long uh, drought that the United right. States had in, in winning the Ryder Cup. But it, you know, like any golf fan, it was just uh, it was an event that I always found extremely interesting and, and exciting. And I, I, I always enjoyed the history of the Ryder cup. And, and, uh, you know, so when I did have the opportunity to go to Wales in 2010 at Celtic Manor, that was my first one where I really experienced things, I would say on the inside. And, uh, you know, as a, as an officer at the time, right. You're in the locker room with the players and the caddies and, and, uh, you know, you're driving carts for the assistant captains and, and you're inside the ropes and you really get a feel for, you know, what the operation of the Ryder Cup is. And, you know, I would say this, that, um, you know, I felt like in, in 2010 with Corey Pavin and then again at, at Medina in 2012 with Davis Love, I thought both those guys did great jobs as captains. And, you know, a Ryder Cup captain's job is probably the most thankless position in all sports because, right. first of all, you don't get paid. Right. It's a volunteer position. And it's one of those things where if the team loses, the captain gets far more blame than they deserve to get. And if they win, they never get enough credit, uh, you know, for for what happens. So um, I have nothing but a tremendous amount of respect for for Corey and Davis. And I got to know both of them very well when they were Ryder Cup captains and, and would consider them friends, you know, to this day. And uh, that being said obviously with that one-off win that we had at Valhalla you know we still were consistently losing these Ryder Cups and you know you 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 look at it when you're on the inside and you say well you know why why are we losing what could we do to 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 change things and you know it was it was funny if you look back at at uh, Paven and, and Love, if there was any criticism that the media, I guess, would have put on those guys, was that maybe they were they were too much players, coaches or captains, um, you know, and that maybe, you know, we needed, you know, something different. And um, and I 
uh, happened to, I was coming home from the, the PGA Grand Slam of golf and, um, this was, would have been in 2010 mm-hmm. and Jim Huber, who was a great yeah, essayist, great essayist had a, right. yeah, celebrated, you know, TV career, particularly with Turner broadcasting had written right. a very interesting book called four days in July. And it was about Tom Watson trying to win the open championship in 2009 at Turnberry. And, uh, you know, I, I read this book. I could not put it down. I, I virtually read the whole thing when I was flying home from Bermuda and uh, it was like this light switch went on. And I thought, you know what? This is exactly the kind of guy that we need as a Ryder Cup captain because in, uh, to this day, uh, the last Ryder Cup that we have won on foreign soil was in 1993 at the Belfry when right. Watson was the captain. And if right. you looked at his career as a player, um, four of his five Open championships had come in Scotland. That's where the 2014 – Ryder cup was, was going to be. So I reached out to, to Huber and I said, you know, I've got this crazy idea. And I said, you certainly know the guy better than I do. Cause at that point in time, I really didn't know Tom at all. And I said, what would your thoughts be of Watson as a Ryder cup captain at Glen Eagles in Scotland? Now understand Larry, this is before we've even played the 2012, right? Right. Cup. Right. It's- <laughs> and this is, this is a long ways out. And, and and but the the other part of that is, at that time, the PGA of America had this unofficial list of the guys that you know were in line to be captain. Right. And uh, right. Um, so I knew if we were going to go that direction, it was going to be off the reservation, so to speak. And right. I was going right. to probably have to do a lot of legwork to to pull this thing off. But anyway, Huber's response when I posed the question was, you know. I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And uh, so I got um, Tom's number, you know, from Jim. And it, this was kind of funny. Jim said, do me a favor. He said, don't tell Watson where you got this number. <laughs> so so I, 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 I'm driving up to Chicago for a meeting. Uh-huh. And I call, I call Watson from my car. This is yeah. the first experience i've had so you don't know him at all right you don't know him at all really i mean personally i mean yeah not personally obviously it certainly did yeah right (laughs) right right we all know of him but yeah personally so this has got to be it's got to be intimidating (laughs) well yeah no no question a little bit so he he answers the phone and i can hear the wind blowing and i can tell he's outside and uh i told him who i was and uh I said, hey, I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the Ryder Cup and get your perspective on why we're having so much trouble winning overseas. Right. And he said, you know, he said, I am in a field in South Dakota hunting pheasants <laughs> with David Faraday and a bunch of disabled veterans. He said, is there any way that I could call you tonight? And I said, yeah, just call me on this number. So he he did. He called me back later that night and uh it was funny um you know when i answered the phone he said this is tom watson he said i've got to apologize i don't remember your name uh, i know this was the number you called me <laughs> he said what exactly were you calling me about <laughs> and so i said well i just kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Ryder cup i'm going to be president in 2014 and and i wanted to get your perspective on some things and that's right. kind of how i eased into the yeah the conversation and the more he talked, you know, the more engaged, you know, he got into the whole, into the whole deal. And, and, uh, you know, I, he had some 
excellent perspective, I thought. You know, the first thing he said was, you know, I think that, you know, one of the reasons that we struggle over there is because of the FedEx Cup. And he said, I say this because these guys play three, four weeks in a row. They get on a plane the night of the FedEx Cup finals. They immediately fly overseas. And he said, I think they're worn out. And he said, you know, I, I feel like we need a week off between the FedEx Cup championship and and the start of the Ryder Cup. And then he had some perspectives just on players and playing in elements and, and, you know, not maybe really understanding how to play in bad weather and just dealing with some of the issues that you have to when you're Americans and you go to the Ryder Cup and, and play. Right. And uh, so I at that point, I could tell that he definitely still cared about the cared Ryder about Cup. it. Right. And, right. and I said, you know, well, I, I guess, Tom, the, the real reason that I'm calling is to find out if you would have any interest in being the Ryder Cup captain in 2014. And uh, now this would have been like in November of uh, 2010. And uh, he's like, uh, Ted, this is the phone call that I've been waiting on. He oh, said, wow. Wow. I would love to do it. Wow. So. We kind of ended the conversation, and then the interesting thing, I got up early the next morning, and I had an email from him, and uh, it said, uh, give me a call if you don't mind, as soon as you can. And I thought, wow, he's... Thought about it. it. You're right, right. (laughs) Maybe he doesn't want to do it now. (laughs) So I call him, I call him, and uh, he's like, you know, he said, I think there's another issue that we need to uh, talk about here. And uh, he said, I'm just going to get it out there. And he said... It's Tiger Woods. And he said, I don't know how Tiger Woods will feel about me as a Ryder Cup captain. And Watson had been publicly critical of uh, Tiger after the whole incident, you know, with the fire plug. Fire hide, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and he said, I just don't know. Uh, I don't know how that's going to operate. And I had done a lot of research <clears throat> on Tom. I'd seen everything that he had said. And, and I said to him that morning, I said, you know, I think I just think that's something that you and Tiger have have got to work out. And I would like to think that that could happen. And quite honestly, sure. I've seen everything you said. And I don't I don't think you said anything that's really out of line. And uh, so that, you know, that was that was kind of that. And then, um, you know, I, I basically spent the next uh, year and a half, you know, convincing um, my fellow officers and the people at Palm Beach Gardens, that this was, you know, the, the right way to go. And I, I assume people, when they heard it, must have said, oh, what a great idea. I mean, you, you didn't, it didn't seem like you got a lot of pushback. I mean, obviously, ultimately, he was captain. But was that a hard job convincing people? Or do you think? You know what? The- no, I mean, it, it really wasn't. I mean, the, the guy that, that um, you know, really took the brunt of the whole thing was David Toms. David Toms would have been next in line. Because no, right, a PGA champion, yep. right, yeah. He would have, David would have been next in line to be the Ryder Cup captain. And obviously that hasn't happened um, since. And, uh, and, and David is, a, he's a great guy. And, um, you know, he probably would have been a great Ryder Cup captain, could still be. And uh, so I, I kind of feel bad that he, you know, that could have cost him an opportunity to be the captain. But again, getting back to the fact this was, you know, you looked at Watson's Ryder Cup record. You looked at the fact this Ryder Cup was going to be in Scotland, how well he performed there as a player, the fact that he was the last winning captain that we had had of a Ryder Cup team 
Um, this selection was widely heralded as being yep. absolutely a genius move. Yeah. You know, when it, when it happened, I mean, the announcement and this is unprecedented um, was made on the today show uh, that that, that yeah. never happened. Yeah. And uh, it was very popular, um, you know, with, with the media, it was, it's, it's funny now when you go back and, and you look at some of the things that were said after the Ryder cup, yeah, by the I same know. people that yeah. heralded the choice, just <laughs> how things change. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an unfortunate fact of life with our media. That is, that is for sure. Um, and I would also think, you know, besides the media at the time heralding it, he's got such universal respect among the players. I got to imagine the players were excited when, you know, they heard that, you know, they wanted to play for Captain Tom, I'm sure, because he's got such respect among the players. Well, that's true. And, and, and you know, and, and, and that was something that, <clears throat> I mean, I picked and choose the guys that I felt like I could trust that would, would keep that, this conversation confidential. And I solicited input of players i talked to steve stricker a lot yeah i talked to uh i talked to tom layman i talked to Corey pavin i talked to past Ryder cup captains um you know and and there was there was nobody that you know had anything negative to say about watson and i will say this that um you know in the two years that led up to that Ryder cup he was asked to do uh more from a public relations standpoint more media appearances than any Ryder Cup captain had ever been done prior to him. But he locked into this thing. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the energy that Tom took from a preparation standpoint trying to get ready for this. And I'll give you some examples. Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned those rain suits that, that right. had malfunctioned, at, you know, right. in Wales. So right. Polo, Polo was going to be our uh, the official outfitter of the 2014 United States Ryder Cup team. So Watson – had them make three different gauges of rain suits for our oh, team, wow. Wow. depending on what the weather was going to be. They sent him samples. He got in the shower with those rain suits on. Oh my! Personally <laughs> tested them, made sure that they, you know, would not leak. Um, he was the first Ryder Cup captain that uh, took our own doctor with us to Europe, and and uh, you know, I remember I was playing golf at, at my golf course, and I got a call from him on a Saturday morning. And he said, hey, I got something I want to talk to you about. He said, you know, we've never done this before. But he said, you know, having a doctor that you're familiar with right. or you're comfortable with is, is a, can be a big deal. And he sure. said, you know, in the past when we go over there, not that they have bad doctors, but but we never have one of our own doctors. What do you think about, you know, um, us having our own doctor that we take with us to, you know, service our team or, you know, wives or anybody in the party that's, you know, got some issues. And, and I said, I think it's, you know, it's a great idea. I mean, he was, he was, we got that week off that, that he wanted between right, the right, Cup right, and right. the, uh, in the Ryder cup, I was on the PGA tour policy board and, and, uh, you know, I went in and, and presented it. Um, the, and that was a big deal. I mean, for oh, the sure. to have to sure. change, you know, the, the dates of the FedEx cup to give us that, that week off, um, you know, he got, he got that, um, yeah. you know, I don't care what, you know, I mean, I don't care what anybody says he solicited the input of players before, during, and, and, uh, you know, in terms of who's going to be on the team, you know, he didn't have an official pod system like Azinger had, but I'm telling you, all the practice rounds, the guys that were going to play together in the matches, they practiced together. Keegan Bradley was on that team because Phil Mickelson wanted him on the team. 
Right. Webb Simpson was on the team because he had paired well with Bubba Watson at Medina. I mean, Tom was a player's captain. And, you know, yeah. one thing that, that really changed during that Ryder Cup, the PGA of America officials had always been in the team room prior to Glenn Eagles. Okay. And Tom came to me about a year out and he said, you know, I've got something I want to talk to you about. He said, this is no offense intended to the PGA of America, but he said, I want that Ryder Cup team room to be totally about the team the captains and the assistant captains and no offense intended, but I'd like no outsiders to be. Oh, wow. Team. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I said, okay, um, I, you know, that's not going to be an easy thing for me to tell uh, the other people the officers that are not right. now yeah. be in there. Right. But I said, if that's what you feel like is in the best interest of the team, then, you know, that's, that's what we'll do. When we got ready to leave to go to Scotland that night, um, he made sure that we ate in Atlanta rather than got getting served a big meal on the plane while we're flying over there. So everybody could get on the plane. They could try to get some sleep to reduce the effects of jet lag. You know, when we, when we landed over there, I mean, I, I could just, I mean, I could talk for an hour. Yeah. You know, that's amazing that, that he did so much so that the Tuesday of the Ryder cup, Pete Bavacqua, who was the CEO at the time, came to me and said, if we win this thing, why would we not bring Watson back to be to be the captain again? Yeah. And I said, well, that'll be somebody else's choice, not mine. And the other thing people forget about that Ryder Cup team, Larry, is that Tiger Woods had won five tournaments in 2013. Um, he obviously would have been locked for that team, but he was injured. He couldn't play in 2014. Dustin Johnson was one of the top players on the tour. He took that voluntary suspension right, from the right. PGA Tour. That's right. Right before the PGA Championship, he was out. Jason Duffner, who had had a great Ryder Cup at Medina, had suffered a neck injury. He was the defending PGA champion in, in 14. He was out. So our team was really um, – oh, we, yeah. we were not at full strength. And, right. and we got beat by 35 shots in that Ryder Cup over the course of the three days. And uh, – Obviously, Watson never hit a shot, and he he took a lot of heat, and everything blew up on that Sunday night. Uh, you know, primarily because of Phil Mickelson. Yeah, that and, must uh, have been. You must sad. have been there at the press conference. I'm <laughs> I sure. I mean, that was that had to be just such a cringeworthy moment. Um, you know, to to witness that. I mean, I, I remember what Jim Furyk said at the time. I mean, so even live, it was cringeworthy. I'm sure, and I'm sure you, you know, sitting there just. I mean, I can only imagine if I was in your shoes, I must. I would have just, I don't know, been horrible to watch that. That must have been awkward. No, uh, well, it was it was brutal, and and I had I had gotten to know uh, Phil really well over that that year. We had actually played in the pro am together at the Scottish Open. He was a defending champion, and right. Uh, right. You know, we spent you know the entire time talking about the Ryder Cup. Here was an issue, you know. Here was an issue right right out of the box. Woods and Mickelson were going to be on that Ryder cup team, no matter what. Okay. Right. Whether they, right. they were going to be captain's picks. I mean, Tom, he, he made that perfectly clear. And I think one of the things that, that, that kind of happened, that was a distraction, those injuries that Woods had in 14, the conversation was always about tiger and whether he was going to be on the team. And, you know, Phil did not earn his place on that team until the PGA championship. Right. You and know, when Val, he finished right. runner-up at, at, at Valhalla. Valhalla. He was still right. going to be on the team. But I don't think Tom 
ever probably conveyed that to Phil the way he had done it with Tiger. And uh, so Phil was, I, I felt like he kind of had a chip. And yeah. Uh, yeah. even I could, I could sense a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't know what, even what the right tension between uh, the two of them when I played with Mickelson at that, that Scottish Open. Um, I, I knew he had nothing to worry about. It wasn't my place to, to tell him that. I thought once the, you know, everybody got there and, and uh, you know, the, the competition started that it would all be good. And then, of course, you know, he, he didn't play well with uh, right. with Bradley in the alternate right. shot. He, he got sat down. Uh, right. And in, in my opinion, uh, you know, what happened on Sunday night was a result of Mickelson being benched all day on Saturday. And he was pissed. Yeah. He, yeah. Know, he, he yeah. carried it with him. If he sure did it, but you know, to Tom's credit, I think if I'm remembering right, at some point you talked to him afterwards and he said, this too shall pass. And it sounds like, you know, Tom, you know, was the big guy and got, got, uh, uh past it, um, you know, more probably than I would have <laughs> I can tell you that if I was in his shoes, but that speaks well of Tom's character. Right. I mean, that's, that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, no, I, I I would agree with that. I I remember it was the day after we got back, and I was I was just pulling out of my driveway to go to the golf course, and the phone rang, and it was him and Tom, and he said, "How are you doing?" And I said, "I'm I'm doing fine." I'm like, "How are you doing?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, I'm serious." He he said, "How are you doing?" He said, "I know this has got to be tough on you. And I said, well, you know what? I said, I'm only getting criticized for one thing. And that's picking you as a captain. I said, you're getting criticized <laughs> for, for a lot of things. So I said, I think I'm doing better than you. Um, but uh, he, he's a classy guy. I'll tell you what, yeah. I, I mean, he, we became great friends or still good friends like yeah. for the day. But, but I will say this about Mickelson. When, you know, when Hillary Watson uh, passed away, right. uh, you know, yeah. I went to, uh, went to her memorial service in, in Kansas city and, and Phil and Amy Mickelson were there. And, and I think there was a lot of conversations that, you know, had taken place with between the Mickelsons and the Watsons, you know, in the last few right. months. And, right. and uh, I, I feel like they put all that stuff behind them. Eventually. Yeah. I think they did too. Of course, with Amy having gone through, you know, her own bout with cancer. Um, I think, I think that's right. So uh, wow. What a, what a great experience to get to, uh, to get to go from not knowing Tom personally to being such great friends with, you know, one of the great champions of all time. Um, let's talk a little bit um, about what we've obviously touched through it chronologically because you were president, you know, at the time of the Ryder Cup, but just the presidency more generally. Um, just, I, I must say, I've looked at that appendix in the book, uh, a lot of accomplishments um, uh, it, for, for that, uh, for your presidency. Um Talk to me a little bit about the relationship with the PGA Tour. I mean, I, I am interested in kind of what you view as your greatest accomplishment. I know some were on the list. I don't know if you put it number one or not. It's kind of the whole relationship you developed with the PGA Tour and Tin Fincham, which is great to see that, you know, two of the leading organizations work together. And you mentioned, you know, the the, the break between um, the Ryder Cup and, and, and the playoffs, which, you know, I'm sure in no small part was due to the relationship you'd established with Tim. But talk to me a little about that and what that relationship was like historically and how you kind of moved it forward with your relationship with the tour. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a, the famous split in 1968 when the, right. the PGA tour broke away from the PGA of America. And, and I would say that the relationship between the tour and the PGA of America since that time leading up to 
2013 when I became president was still kind of a rocky relationship. And you get these edicts that are passed on from one generation of PGA officer to another. And so when I came in, I was led to believe that, you know, that the tour was a threat. The, the Players' Championship was trying to supplant the PGA Championship as one of golf's four majors. The President's Cup was trying to become the preeminent international team competition. And so I was going to a my first PGA Tour policy board meeting. It was my shadowing meeting a couple of weeks yeah. before I became president. And yeah. Fincham called me into his, in, into his room at, uh, you know, we were at Amelia Island and uh, – um, he called me into his room and he said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about something. He said, I don't know what is, I don't know what the problem is, you know, with the PGA of America, but he said, basically the PGA championship is always going to be one of the four majors. Right. And the Ryder cup is always going to be the most significant international team competition. He said, the players championship and the president's cup are no threat to the PGA of America. You guys need to appreciate the assets <laughs> you have right. and, and, and let it go. And, and he said, you know, if we could work together, the things we could accomplish would be phenomenal. So I would give a hundred percent of the credit in, in the repair of that relationship to Tim Fincham. I mean, he was the one that extended the olive branch. And then he and I really kind of immediately hit it off. Um, we talked a lot. The PGA Tour supported the PGA of America during the anchoring controversy, right. which was right. absolutely, that was huge for us. I sure. mean, it gave that so much credibility. But what, what impressed me with Fincham and the other tour players that were on the policy board at the time was that they were very interested in how this was going to impact the recreational amateurs yeah. um, just as much as they were the, the, the people on their tour that were going to be affected. So um, we just, uh, Fincham and I had a, just, we, we had a, a tremendous relationship right out of the gate. And I would say almost on a quarterly basis, you know, we would come up with agendas that would, there would be various trade-offs, um, you know, that the PGA of America might make as related to uh, qualifying spots. And the back then, um, you know, on, on the web.com tour that were valuable right. to the tour. Right. Um, and, and, th and they gave our club professionals other playing opportunities. I, you know, Tim was very instrumental in getting us to increase the purse in the PGA championship to $10 million. And at the time it was, that made it the richest major, um, you know, in, in all of golf. And, right. uh, but they, the, but the tour in turn did some things for the PGA tour, you know, uh, for the PGA of America. When we did that, one of the things that, uh, most people never knew, uh, was the fact that th there was a revenue sharing component that the PGA tour had with the PGA of America on TV rights and the Ryder cup. I, mm. I think the, the, the tour gets, I, I don't know. I think it was like 15% of the the TV rights. And, uh, you know, Fincham had me go to the, the players meeting and address the players and explain to them, you know, how they shared in this TV money. And you know what, when, when I did that, that there was no more conversation about the players not getting paid to play in the Ryder cup. Yeah. You know, yeah. they understood that they had a vested interest in that thing as well. And, and it was an absolutely beautiful relationship. Uh, I mean, they were instrumental in helping us, um, 
you know, really secure Harding Park as a PGA championship site. We were looking for a West Coast site. Right. And uh, that was uh, was one of the things that I no question was was proudest of and, and felt like, you know, made the greatest impact on certainly the PGA of America, but also the PGA Tour was that relationship. No, that is that is fantastic. And, um, you know, it's funny, this is not a, a big thing, but I always wondered what happened to Glory's last shot, because I remember that being such a prominent part of so many PGA telecasts. And I never realized that that actually intentionally went away. And that was part of the discussion. One of the discussions with Tim, right? No, that, that's exactly right. That was one of the things that came up in that first meeting. And, and, you know, he said, look, he said, you know, there are, there are other shots that are hit after that. So he said, I think you guys right. really need to, to think about removing that tagline. And, uh, and so we did that, 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 I'm glad you, I'd forgotten about that, but that's, that's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's got his whole fall series, right? It's, it's, it's exactly. PGA's not his last shot, right? Exactly. Um, and um, that, that, that's fantastic. Um, you know, just talking a little bit about some of your other um, experiences as president, I mean, the people you got to know, I mean, obviously Watson was through the Ryder cup, but um with the Arnold Palmer Deacon Palmer award. I mean, that must've been pretty neat, right. I, um, to sort of get that established, I think was under your, and, and I'm sure some of the, you know, journalists, it sounds like Tim Rosaford, Jaime Diaz. I mean, that must've been a neat part of the job, right. Getting to meet all those sorts of people in golf. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think the, the Arnold Palmer story is, is one that has to be told here. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, this came during the anchoring controversy and, you know, Palmer was really kind of on the side of the USGA. Right. And so I, I just felt that it was important to go to Orlando and uh, explain to him why the PGA of America was where we were at. I wasn't trying to change his mind. I just wanted him to understand why we opposed it. And sure. so I went down and met with him the day after Bay Hill in 2013. And, uh, you know, I made my spiel. He sat there and listened. And, uh, you know, when I got done, he basically, you know, kind of threw his hands up in the air and he said, you know, my biggest fear in all this is if, you know, if this happens, then it's going to create two sets of rules in the game. And he said, I just don't think that's good for golf. And I, I just inadvertently, sometimes you say things without thinking about them. And, you know, I said, well, that's really interesting, Mr. Palmer, because in the early 2000s, you were an advocate for a non-conforming Callaway ERC driver. And I said, right. that's not bifurcation of the rules. You know, I don't know what is. Right. And he just right. threw his right. hands up in the air and he said, well, that's how I feel. So I thought that I thought the meeting was over with. And, you know, I stood up and extended my hand to shake his hand. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, where are you going? And I sat back down. I knew I wasn't going anywhere at that point. And <laughs> so he opens his desk door up and he pulls some photos out of his grandkids. And, you know, all of a sudden he kind of warms up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm just, we're just sitting there listening and having a good conversation. And then he looks at me right in the eye and he points his finger at me and he says, now I'm going to tell you some things about the PGA of America that you don't know. Oh, wow. And, um, and he said, you know, you had that stupid rule you know, back when I came on the tour where you had to be a uh, member of the PGA for five years before you could play in a Ryder cup. And he said, right. that cost me two Ryder cups. He right. said, couldn't play in the PGA championship. And, and I'm like, well, you know, all that stuff has <laughs> been changed now. It's, it's no longer, <laughs> no longer that way. But then he, then, but this was the, the, the hot point with him, but he said, you know, you had this 
clause in your constitution where you wouldn't allow handicapped members or handicapped people to join the PGA of America. And he said, my dad was a cripple. That's exactly the way he said it. My dad hmm. was a cripple and you kept him out of the, out of the PGA of America for a while. Well, again, there's times when you want to argue and when you don't, and this was well, sure. a time not to, right, you know? right. And, and so I right. just, I heard him out, and I mean, we never had a clause in our constitution like that. Unfortunately, we did have that all Caucasian clause right, until right, 1960, right. but we never had right. anything precluding, you know, handicapped people. So, right, right. I called the PGA of America membership department when I was at the airport, flying back home, and I asked them to give me everything they could give me on Deacon Palmer, and uh, and they did. And as it turned out, there was like an 11 year lapse uh, between 1925 and 1936 when he could have become a PGA member. And back then, you know, once you served your apprenticeship was just a matter of just, you know, working for five years. Right. Um, all you needed was the two signatures of PGA members in your section and you should be good to go. Well, who knows why he, it took him 11 years for that to happen. I, you know, he, he, like me got into the business as a superintendent. Maybe he, maybe that upset pros and they, they right. felt like he was right. more of a superintendent than a pro. I don't know. Yeah. But and nobody, unfortunately, was alive, you know, uh, from that time frame that could shed any light on it. So sure. I wrote I wrote Palmer a, a two page letter, explained all this stuff and sent it to him and uh, never heard back from him. And, uh, you know, I I saw the documentary on Golf Channel and they made a big deal about how he always answered Ants. every right. correspondence right. that he ever got. And uh, I was working the Masters that following year in 14. I was working rules with Dow Finsterwald on the ninth hole. And Dow and, and Mr. Palmer were good friends. And I, I yeah. told Finsterwald this story. And I'm like, you know, the guy the guy never answered my letter. I, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I can't figure it out. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to have lunch with him next week. And uh, let me ask him. So sure enough, the Wednesday afternoon after the Masters, Dow calls me and he said, hey, he said, I had lunch with Arnold, went back to his office, asking me about that letter. He said, he pulled his desk drawer open. He said, he, he showed me the letter. He, <laughs> he said, has he it there. Yeah. Uh, and Dow said, well, for crying out loud, he said, answer the man's letter. And he <laughs> said, Arnold said, well, I haven't figured out what I want to say yet. So, <laughs> so Mike McCarley, who was president of the Golf Channel at, at that point in time, I he obviously was close to Palmer and I, I knew Mike well. And so I, I called Mike and I told him about this and I said, just, man, this just really bothers me that, you know, sure. the PGA would have a bad relationship with Arnold Palmer. Right. Such an icon. Sex. Yeah. Right. And so we kind of brainstormed it and uh, decided that maybe, um, maybe we would approach, I would approach Mr. Palmer with the concept of creating a national award called the Deacon Palmer award that would, recognize a PGA member who had overcome, you know, a significant obstacle in his or her lifetime and who had, had been everything that Deacon Palmer had been a, a great promoter of the game, a teacher right. of the game, a right. servant in their community. And uh, so I went back to, to Bay Hill in, uh, in June of 2014 and, and uh, presented this idea to Mr. Palmer. And uh, it was, it was the most moving experience that, that I've really ever experienced in, wow. in my life short of some kind of a family situation and and you know he after he heard it the tears just started streaming oh wow oh, boy. His eyes yeah. and he you know he looked up and he said you know pap would have would have really enjoyed this and uh 
How awesome. And so he agreed to it. And then, you know, we as an association decided that we would give the first Deacon Palmer award at the annual meeting in Indianapolis in November, we would present it posthumously to Deacon Palmer and, and Arnold would, would be there to accept it. And, uh, and he did, unfortunately, I wasn't there, but, but, but he was. Now that, what a moving thing. What a great idea. Um, so we should touch a little bit on, on that. I, I, you know, so much has been written about, you know, the whole tweet and the ending, you know, your presidency, which I, you know, is just, I, 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 I thought it, as, as painful as that whole thing must've been. And as much as the punishment seems so way out of proportion to the, you know, crime. Um, uh, and, and you go through this a lot in your book. I mean, it's gotta be somewhat gratifying to see how many people came to your support after that. I mean, it doesn't erase the pain I'm sure of what happened, but, you know, like Watson back to, you know, turning down that award the next year. I mean, that's, that's speaks, that's gotta be pretty meaningful to you, even in this, you know, awkward situation that you had to go through. Well, you know, it was in, in 2015, then Tim Fincham and Steve Stricker and, and Tom Watson all came to my facility and we had a, uh, a two day deal called the Mulligan open. And we had a, a, a dinner that evening in which all those guys were there and we raised over $50,000 for various charities wow. here in wow. Indianapolis. And, and it, it meant a lot, but I, but I want to, I do want to say this. Yeah. And, and I have, and I really, I've said this from the beginning. What what I did was absolutely moronic. Um, I mean, I had plenty of media training. Um, you know, I, I just uh, th- that was a, a, a mistake on my part. And I have taken ownership yeah, of that mistake. And, I've, and I've actually, you know, I've, every opportunity that I've had to speak to corporate groups or I'm very involved with our, our local high school. I've, I've talked about the responsibilities that you have as a leader. Um, right. You know. And, and so I just, I want to make it clear that it was, it was, it was dumb. Uh, maybe the punishment didn't fit the crime, uh, but certainly I controlled my own destiny. And if I had, you know, if I had uh, probably 45 seconds of my life to relive, uh, yes, that would be I'm the sure. 45 seconds that I, I would choose to, to do over again. I'm sure. I'm sure I can, I can imagine that. I mean, you know, and it's wonderful that, you know, you, you, you mentioned that is when you give talks. I mean, it's been, um, I'm just curious, and I think the book was probably written around 2016, so a couple of years afterwards when it got published. Now we're sitting here in 2022, so a little more than seven years have sort of passed. I mean, um, and, and you absolutely have taken ownership of it, but I'm just curious, is there any other thoughts as you look back on it, um, that, you know, the passage of time has given you more perspective. I'm just curious, just cause it's been now seven and a half years. I'm just curious how you'd look back on it. Well, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, for the benefit of the people listening to this podcast may not know what we're specific. Yeah, well, we should, we should, we should go into more, <laughs> we should go to more. Yeah, I should. So yeah, that, I skipped over it, but I'll, let me do, I'll do it quickly for you and you can fill in. So, okay. you know, um, uh, Ian Poulter had, um, I think you were just coming back from something with Nick Faldo, if I remember, but Ian Poulter had sort of tweeted some, this is after the Ryder Cup, Ian Poulter had tweeted something um, about, you know, um, uh, criticizing, if I remember, I followed him, and I think Watson was in there too, and you responded 
um, to that tweet, you know, and, 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 you know, basically uh, criticizing what Poulter had sort of said, and I, you know, used the term little girl in, 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 in one of the tweets about it. And, and it sort of all blew up, you know, uh, like hugely. And, um, and I mean, I'll let you jump in here. I just, I, I know that, you know, one of my impressions, Ted, in sort of reading it as closely as I remember when it happened at the time, but, you know, reading more of the details about it is how you were kind of in a bit of a box because your initial instinct, it seemed to me was, you know, I want to get out there and put an apology out there and stuff. And you were, sounded like you were a little handcuffed by what the PGA folks wanted you, you know, don't say anything. And, and it all happened very fast, but go ahead and fill in whatever I've messed up there or missed. No, I mean, I, I think you you had it right. I mean, this, this happened about a month after the Ryder Cup was over with, and uh, it, it was a tough month. I mean, there was a lot of criticism, you know, dished out um, towards me and, and towards Watson. And when Poulter made the remarks that he did about Tom specifically, you know, I just took exception to it. I thought, you know, here's a foreign player that really has got no – no interest in, in this matter. And, and I couldn't believe given Tom's playing record and given his and given yeah. Faldo's and, right, and his right. that Poulter would say some of the things that, that he had said. So it caught me in an emotional moment. And, sure. you know, I, I referred to him as a little girl and I could have called him immature. Or I could have said it, said it a lot of other ways, but the one, the one valuable lesson I, I found is I, at the time, I think I had, 5,000 followers on Twitter and he had 1.5 million and you don't pick a fight wow. you know, with somebody wow. that's got, wow. um, yeah. you know, that kind of following on social media. And, and, and yeah. I would say the vast majority of the negative reaction was, you know, from, from his side. Now it's been kind of funny if, if you watch how political correctness has unfolded, yeah. you know, in the last seven years and, and you now look at what, you know, what has been said, particularly you go back to the presidential campaign between Clinton and, and Trump and, and look right. at some of the remarks that were made in that campaign. Right. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, once again, I was kind of uh, before my time, which has been <laughs> where I've, I've been at various points in my life professionally. But uh, um, but I but, you know, I, I think looking back now, um, you know, it's it's pretty benign. And if you if you knew my career, and this was what was disappointing to me with the PGA of America, I guess, if you knew my career, I had been a champion for women in golf oh, my totally. entire professional life, totally. um, not just yeah. with my two girls and, and, and my wife who work here, but I'm just talking about women in general and opportunities in golf. And ironically, um, the night um, before that happened, I addressed the girls that were at this uh, Faldo Institute at the Greenbrier. And right. I told them what great opportunities they had in golf because they were women. And, uh, you know, but uh, you know what? It is what it is. The, the hardest part for me in all that is I had given 25 years of voluntary service to the PGA yeah, of America going back to 1988 when I became involved here in my section. So it really probably took me longer than it, than it should have taken for me to move on and get, get past all that. But, um, you know, but I've done that and, you know, I'm really in a, in a good place professionally and, and, and mentally, I feel like I've gotten involved in, in other things. And I, I value that time greatly that I had as a leader with the PGA of America. Uh, I can't go back and, and change anything, but, um, I don't, I really don't miss it. And, and I, 
I'm, I'm just past it. And I'm, I'm, I've, I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, listen, that speaks volumes about you that uh, you, you have gotten past that. I mean, more easier probably than I would have if I was in your shoes, but I appreciate what you're saying and, and, and you've always taken ownership of it. And um, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, and I know, you know, and people have written about this, Jaime has others, Tim Rosefort, about all the um, tremendous activity and changes you made during your 23 months as, as president, um, just a lot that were accomplished. And um, I know you must have pride in all that stuff you did, notwithstanding, you know, how it ended here. I mean, because you really, between the PGA Tour relationship and lots of other things, um, you, you must look back on that with pride, I hope. Well, I, you know, I do. And I think, you know, one of the biggest uh, things inside the PGA that I feel good about is, you know, we negotiated, renegotiated our television rights contract with NBC to the tune of $440 million in, in yeah. uh, 2013 through uh, 2030, that agreement goes. And I immediately said to Bavakwa, you know, look, we have got to figure out a way to share some of this revenue with our 41 sections. And we're a nonprofit organization and, and it's not always as easy uh, to do that as you might think it would be. So we had to come up with some creative ways that we could share the wealth, so to speak, with our 41 sections. And, you know, today, and this has been going on since uh, 2013, um, our PGA sections are now receiving each um, in excess, uh, well, we're divvying out in excess of $5 million um, annually to our 41 PGA sections. And uh, in fact, that number is probably even greater now. So you can do the math and, and that's, that's a number that will go on for perpetuity. And it's, uh, it's soon going to be over a hundred million dollars. It's going to go wow. back to PGA members. And that was, I, I felt like everything that I did, Larry was based on, is it good for the PGA member? And right. uh and, and, and that genuinely was why I wanted to, to be president of the PGA. I, I happened to have some incredible opportunities, I felt, uh, during my time to impact members, uh, you know, in a positive way. And um, there was a lot of stuff going on in golf, for sure. For sure. And, I, and, and I'm, glad you, I'm glad you made that point, because I know from talking to our mutual friend, Patrick Casey and others that you've always been, you were always viewed as someone who had the members first and foremost, not the, or, not the corporate organization, but the individual members and, um, and, you know, which is the way it should be. So that, that speaks fairly well. Yeah. Um, of you, Ted, I want to thank you. Uh, I, you've been, you've indulged me. I know I've kept you longer than I probably told you I would, but this has been great. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it, and I um, great meeting you. And I really appreciate uh, and thank you for all of your time. This has been tremendous. No, thank you, Larry. I always, uh, you know, I enjoy talking about these things, and and uh, you know, enjoyed meeting you. And uh, tell Patrick I said hello. I will. Thank you so much.